there will be a mercy less judgment for the one who demonstrates that they do not know this savior and have not received this gospel. And here will be the evidence that someone has not experienced gospel mercy in Jesus. They do not show mercy to others. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller and we're continuing a message that we began last time, seeing people through a gospel lens. And Jonathan, I hear you saying that when we understand the gospel and when we understand the mercy that God has shown us, that ought to lead to us showing mercy to those that we interact with. Well, it must do so, mustn't it? But again, this is a challenging teaching that we so desperately need to hear because we, if we know Jesus, we rely on his mercy. We know we rely on his mercy. We come to him with empty hands, bankrupt in and of ourselves, and we ask him to give us that which we do not deserve in his grace and to refrain from giving us what we do deserve in judgment and in his mercy. And we're so quick, I think, to turn around and not treat people in the way that he has treated us and how we need to learn that our faith in Christ should shape our disposition and our demeanor toward other people. I think we're slow to learn that. But over time, I would say this as well. I notice in believers, those who have walked with the Lord for years and years and experienced his mercy, we see evidence that they are learning this and have learned it. And it's a beautiful thing to see when you see it. Yeah. Well, we're going to see what God has to say to us from James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, as we continue a message seeing people through a gospel lens. Here is Jonathan. Of the different places I've had an opportunity to live, the different cities that I I know reasonably well, I think Ottawa is perhaps the least divided socially and economically. That's not to say there are no divisions. There certainly are divisions. But I think here in Ottawa, we have fewer social and economic extremes than many cities and many communities. The social and economic middle is unusually large, I think, in our community for a variety of reasons. The extremes are a little bit less pronounced, not absent by any means, but less pronounced. And as I've been reflecting on this text and thinking about our situation, it seems to me that the danger for us as a church living in this environment, in this community, the danger is that we will actually imagine that these issues are not issues for us. The danger is that we will imagine that this text has no application, no relevance for us. And because we can think that way, because we don't think in terms of these categories maybe very much, the danger is that we won't guard ourselves against partiality. I think that's our danger. And so I think we need our eyes to be open to the issues that James is raising for us here in this text. We need to ask what we might have overlooked, where we might have stumbled and not even noticed it because we weren't thinking about it. That's, that's our challenge. That's our need, I believe. Now, James calls us to show no partiality first because of faith in the Lord of glory. Because the Lord of glory humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Because this glorious Lord chose those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and through the gospel. Because knowing him and believing his gospel transforms our social outlook. So we look at each other in different ways. Our understanding of people is made new. 
our ways of viewing one another now are shaped by the gospel. If we are to show no partiality because of faith in the Lord of glory, we are also to show no partiality because of obedience to the law of liberty. Notice it with me, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. You remember that Jesus was once asked which was the most important commandment in the law. And in reply, he said this very famously, Matthew 22, verse 37. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. If you really keep those commandments in their totality, you are doing what the Lord calls you to do because they sum everything up. And so James calls this neighbor love law the royal law and says, if you really do that, you are really doing well. And this, this principle of loving my neighbor as I love myself, it's a principle we'll we'll all be familiar with many people who know virtually nothing of the teaching of Jesus, nothing of the Christian faith, will know that Jesus encouraged people to, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. It's basic Bible knowledge. It's core Christian teaching. And any of us who names the name of Christ must at least lay claim to seeking to do this in our own lives. And, and many of us would, would feel, you know, on a, on a good day, we're making some progress on it. We're, we're trying to be patient with people. We're, we're trying to show some grace where grace is needed. We're trying to be generous with our, with our possessions and so on, as we would want people to be generous with us. We, we might point to a whole host of ways where we are seeking to put this into practice in our lives. But James is concerned here that we may be allowing ourselves some respectable exceptions to this command. He is concerned that we may have convinced ourselves that we are doing this even while we actually show partiality even while we love some neighbors a little bit better than we love other neighbors. We show love and welcome and lots of grace and patience to those we kind of, you know, like the look of, basically, people who are like us, who are similar to us. But, but when it comes to the, the poor man, uh, the, the outcast, the social outcast, the lowly person, the one who's not really part of our circle, who we're not so comfortable with, when it comes to such a person, we easily convince ourselves that it's quite acceptable to show them just a little bit less of the neighbor love. After all, there's only so much neighbor love to go around. So we just have to be a little selective. You know, we give the good seat, the, the warm welcome, the opportunities and the preferment to the one who is impressive in worldly terms. And we give something a little bit less to the one who is not. And we easily convince ourselves that it is actually functionally okay to do that. And that inconsistency in loving our neighbor, we find that remarkably easy to overlook, to ignore, even to justify. And here's what James is wanting us to see and understand. He wants us to see and to understand that partial obedience is actually disobedience. That's, that's the principle here. We can't pick and choose where we will obey and where we will 
ignore. One of the comfortable myths we like to believe is that there are certain types of sin, certain types of transgression that are a little more acceptable, a little more respectable than others. Stealing, murdering, adultery, things like that, they're always bad. We agree on that. We're not confused about that. Always serious. But there are other things which, well, you know, they're a little bit harder to pin down, maybe a little harder to identify and to see, a little harder to address. And we think we kind of have a shared understanding, a little quiet agreement among ourselves that they're less bad, not so urgent to deal with. And as I reflect on this passage and on what James is saying to us, and as I reflect on the life of the church and the history of the church, not just this church, but I mean the church global, I think the sin of partiality has been a sin that we've treated just a little bit like that over time. What a place to have to pause today's teaching, but we'll get back to this message, seeing people through a gospel lens in just a moment. You know, you may want to go back and listen to this broadcast and the previous broadcast, the first half of this message again. You can do that by coming to our website, EncounterTheTruth.org, and you can stream the program or download an MP3 for free. Again, that's at EncounterTheTruth.org. Back to the message. Here is Jonathan. I have in my study somewhere, and I'm embarrassed to say that I can't remember which corner of which cupboard I placed it in. If you saw my study and the piles of books everywhere, you might understand what's going on here. But I, I know I have somewhere in my study a piece of wood, a little, little piece of wood that was given to me by a friend. It was a small piece of wood that was salvaged from the old pews of Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge in England. The pews were being torn out and thrown away and a friend retrieved a piece for me because it was a piece of history. Holy Trinity Church, which stands in the middle of the university town, was made famous because of the remarkable ministry of its pastor, Charles Simeon, in the late 18th and early 19th century. Simeon was a, a father of modern expository preaching, and that's another story, but it was a remarkable ministry. In any event, in those days in England, Anglican churches had a system whereby families would be able to rent pews within the church, and their pew would be reserved for them. The wealthy could secure the best seats under that system, and the poor might well be sitting right at the back or have nowhere to sit. When Simeon was appointed pastor of this particular church, many objected to his appointment. They didn't like his evangelical theology and his Bible teaching. They didn't like his preaching. And the pew owners, as a mark of their protest and to try and get rid of Simeon, were able to lock their pews and to ensure that no one could come in and sit down for the preaching of the word. They wouldn't actually come and sit and listen to this new preacher. They didn't like him at all. And so those who wanted to come and wanted to hear the word of God would have to stand in the aisles or find something to sit on in the aisles. And so poor Simeon had to stand there preaching to empty pews and packed aisles. And I gather the situation persisted for something like a decade, actually. Now, there's a lot to reflect on in Simeon's very, very interesting story. But I, I mention it simply because of this. It is a reminder to me of a time when wealth and privilege were permitted to dominate church life. The pew holders had the power, and actually they used their power in that context to try and keep others from hearing the gospel. 
Now, I think we could probably find, if we thought about it together, we could probably find plenty of examples from more recent church history where the wealthy have wielded undue influence in churches because of their wealth, where the powerful have been given position and preferment because of their worldly standing. Now, I don't think this problem and this issue is rife in our context and in our day like it might have been in a former day. It's not kind of in your face with the rented pews and so on of the 18th and 19th century, which uh, was common enough on both sides of the Atlantic, actually. But where and how today, this is the question, do we make it respectable or acceptable to show partiality on the basis of wealth or social standing or worldly influence. Where do we allow that in church, perhaps even unawares? And where do the less wealthy, the less socially established, the less educated, the less powerful, where do such as these get treated with less dignity, less concern, less care? Where are we guilty of giving that warmer welcome or that quicker integration into church life or that fast track into church leadership to those of higher social economic standing to the rich, the educated, the connected. Where are we in danger of overlooking those who are less impressive in the eyes of the world? Now, I'm not sure I have the answer to that question. <laughs> sometimes when the Bible points to an area of sin or a pitfall in church life or something like that, sometimes, you know, I read it and I see it right away. I say, this is our issue. We've got to, you know, we've got to deal with this. Here's how it works for us. Here's how it's got to change. My fear as I study this, as I read this, my fear is that with the issue of partiality, we don't see it so easily. That's my concern. I, I, I don't notice it so readily. My fear is that we could be showing partiality, and I'm sure in some ways we do, I have no doubt that we're capable of it. My fear is that we would do it in such a subtle, such a polite, such an unconscious way that it's actually become an accepted part of how we do things and we don't even register the fact, we don't even notice. That's my fear. And so I, I'm asking this question actually in a genuine way. I want to put it out there and I'd like us to think about it and talk among ourselves about it, reflect upon it prayerfully. Where might we make sin? respectable in this respect? Where might you and I act as little judges among ourselves, ranking the value of people, one another's value according to the standards of the world, rather, rather than allowing the Lord to choose and welcome and accept those he will through the gospel of grace at the cross of Calvary? Friends, where are our blind spots here? Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you've experienced it. James's great burden in these verses is to show us that this issue matters. It's not a second-class sin. It's not a respectable sin. It's not an unimportant issue. No, loving our neighbor as we love ourselves is at the core of our obedience to the Lord. And loving our neighbor means rejecting partiality, refusing to judge one another according to the standards of this world, instead treating one another with a gospel welcome and with equal dignity and honor and respect. Now, at this point, James steps back to highlight a key principle 
for reading the law, the ethical standards of the word of God. It was commonly understood within Judaism that the law is an integrated whole. It is indivisible because it has its origin in God himself. Notice it with me in verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. The principle here is that since every part of the law of God has its origin in the word of God, in God himself, all of it matters equally. We can't pick and choose the bits we like and the bits we want to obey and the bits that we feel free to disobey. It's a unity, and that's logical enough. And James urges us as believers, we need to be those who take seriously the law of God, who believe that we are accountable to him for our obedience. And he highlights that accountability for us in verse 12. He says, so speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. If we're trusting in Jesus, if we belong to him, we don't fear a judgment where our salvation will be at issue. No, if we know Jesus, if we trust his death in our place, we don't feel the possibility of being, we don't fear the possibility of being condemned at the final day. But here is what we do anticipate as believers. We do anticipate an evaluation of our service. We anticipate appearing before what Paul calls elsewhere the judgment seat of Christ. And God's standards in his law are faithfulness in doing what his word commands. It will be at issue on that day. It's a sobering thought to consider to contemplate the judgment seat of Christ. But it is so wonderful to recognize how James describes that law that will be at issue. It is, you notice, the law of liberty. For the believer, the law of God is now for us the law of liberty. And it is the law of liberty in a double sense. It's doubly true. On the one hand, God's law is liberating because as our creator, we know that his way is the best way to live in his world. Life according to the maker's design is a life of freedom and of blessing. That, that's one sense in which this is the law of liberty. It's liberating to live God's way. But there is another sense. The law is the law of liberty for the Christian believer because Jesus has fulfilled it perfectly in his life. He has died to set us free from our deserved penalty for failing to keep it. He has given us of his spirit to help us to learn to obey. Yes, we have an accountability before the judgment seat of Christ, but it is to this gospel-infused law of liberty. That's not a fearful thing in the sense of terror. It is really a spur to obedience, but, but there is a note of warning that comes here as well, a more somber note, and James wants us to hear it. Verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. The law of God is the law of liberty for the believer. And, and we receive the commands of God in a spirit of gospel liberty and with a liberating help of our Savior who fulfilled the law's requirements for us. But, and here's the warning, 
there will be a mercy-less judgment for the one who demonstrates that they do not know this Savior and have not received this gospel, who have not received the mercy of God, experienced the mercy of God at the cross of Christ. And here will be the evidence that someone has not experienced gospel mercy in Jesus. And this brings everything full circle. The evidence will be this. They do not show mercy to others. If a person has a track record of failing to show mercy to other people, if there's not been that merciful spirit, then it is evidence, it is at least an indicator that the person has not received, not experienced the life-transforming mercy of Jesus. Now, now, why is James talking in these terms? Why is he talking about mercy and a failure to show mercy here? Well, it goes back, doesn't it, to this idea of partiality and us daring to act like little judges when we evaluate one another according to the standards of the world. Poor person, ragged clothing comes in. We nudge them inside in favor of the wealthy and the influential and the worldly impressive. And what have we done? We have had the audacity to engage in a work of judgment. We've shown no kindness. We've shown no compassion, no mercy to the poor and the outcast who so desperately needed mercy from us, who so needed to be treated better than their poverty might suggest in the ranking systems of this world. And if that has been our approach and that has been our outlook, here's what it suggests. It suggests that we have never ourselves come to God empty of hand, ragged of dress, bankrupt in moral standing. We've never come to him for mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment, says James. It did at the cross. It does for the believer, and it must do when we're tempted to judge one another according to the standards, according to the prejudices of this world. Friends, I think this text and this admonition calls for sober reflection for each of us and for us as a community, as a church. I wonder if and where you sense you might have allowed worldly standards to cloud your view of another person, to shape your treatment of another believer. I wonder where we as a community might be falling short on this and not even noticing it. I wonder where our different blind spots may be. We are to be those who show no partiality, friends. We are to do so and be so because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, and because of our obedience to his law of liberty. Let's pray together as we close. Our Father, we want to thank you for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ revealed at the cross. We want to thank you for the law of liberty, which shows us how to live in your world, but points us to the Savior who lived that perfect life, who died for our sins, who gives us the gift of the Spirit that we might live as your people. Help us to be a people marked by mercy and kindness toward one another. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth with a great prayer to wrap up our time together. Our message is called Seeing People Through a Gospel Lens, part of our series, 
doers of the word. And if you've missed any of the broadcasts in this series, you can always come and listen online at EncounterTheTruth.org. You know, Timothy was a protege of Paul. Paul had helped lead him to the Lord and was involved in training up Timothy for ministry. And so Paul's instructions and his personal model for faithful ministry really were not just the standard for Timothy, but a standard for every generation. Now, while they were written to Timothy, they're so applicable for you and for me today. And Jonathan has written about this in a book called The Ministry Medical, a health checkup from 2 Timothy. This book is our thank you gift to you as you financially support Encounter the Truth this month. You can find out more or give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 1-833-998-7884 or EncounterTheTruth.org. For Jonathan Griffiths and our producer Mark Bretta, I'm Steve Hiller. I hope you'll join us next time.